Squeaky all day. Here he comes quickly, he comes to fill the sack upon his back. Monsters like tall, scary to all squirrels. Things and jail, boards and shows. Grown up was being done, and he's really scrambling all in tears. Children they hear, Krampus is near. Their hearts are spare, cries fill the air. Oh, how they wail, wildly they flail. It is too late, this is their fate. Krampus is here, naughty kids fear. Once in his sack, they won't come back. Krampus is here, Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. Krampus. What better Halloween Christmas crossover can there be than Krampus? So first, happy Halloween, my adored weirdos. I hope you're having fun and maybe being at least a little bit dangerous tonight. I mean, tricks and treats aren't about staying safe and responsible. Not exactly sure what I'll be doing this evening, but I want to have something for the kids roaming around. I mean, their parents decided to risk their health and everyone else's, so i got to make it worthwhile. Anyway, a show on Krampus is overdue. Everybody loves Krampus. Too many people love Krampus. So many people love him, in fact, that he's only barely weird anymore. His rough edges are getting smoothed out, his mane's getting groomed, and he doesn't really creep anyone out anymore. I mean, I even have a Funko Pop of the guy, which is cool and all, but sad. Because look, Krampus is supposed to keep us feeling on edge, right? Kind of like stress and anxiety are there to make you productive and ambitious, not just satisfied with the same old lingering existence day after day. Krampus made people sit up and think, wait, Christmas isn't always about sentimental goodness and peace and cozy lethargy? Krampus meant you had to face the fact that Christmas used to be a heavy time. A season for facing up to whether or not you really deserve to see the sun rise again, or be able to feed your family, or, you know, live another year. He reminded you that the universe was filled with forces beyond your control that would barge into your house and judge your worth as a person where your parents' natural preference for your safety didn't mean squat. Krampus was hardcore. Now, though, he's a Halloween costume. He's a guest appearance on American Dad and Scooby-Doo. He's just a bit on Stephen Colbert and even the star of a watered-down, kind of low-key, big-budget horror movie. Krampus, I fear, has become a commodity. Because that's what we do in America. We sell everything until it's lost any meaning or hold in our imagination and is just one more Funko Pop to set on your shelf while you binge-watch some reboot and eat Funyuns. But because I love you, I wanted to find a way to keep Krampus creepy. And I figured the best way to do that was get in touch with the one American who really seems to get Krampus's original terrifying Alpine Austrian core. And that would be Al Ridenour. Al's written an incredible book on Krampus's history, both about the folklore and the local celebrations. It's called The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Roots and Rebirth of the Folkloric Devil. It's just an awesome title. I know I say I love every book whose author I talk to, but if I'm not picking good books and writers, what's the point, right? You trust my impeccable taste. Of course you do. But Al's book is a real treat, not only because of the full history he traces, but also for the pictures. He's collected all kinds of images of Krampus costumes and Krampus louts, which are how Krampus is still celebrated in some places, with groups of people dressed up like the creatures running around in troops led by a St. Nicholas. It's pretty cool. He spent time in the Alps cataloging these runs and noting all their differences, and he tells all sorts of colorful stories of local and modern traditions right next to tracing connections to much older texts and folktales. It's a wonderful book, even for the pictures alone. 
He also started a show called Bone and Sickle that's all about the creepier side of folklore and folktale history. We talk about it later on, but you should definitely check it out because it's the kind of show I would love to make. But as he says, it takes way more time to be all cool and dramatic as he does it on there. Still, I was thrilled to finally get to talk to him and get us all some Krampus love right from the best source we could possibly have. Oh, and this awesome song called Carol of the Krampus is by The Courtesan and The Cabin Boy, which you can get on Bandcamp. Links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to talk to me. This is something I even joked with people when I first started doing this that I wasn't gonna do a Krampus episode because it was starting to seem too popular. <laughs> it wasn't weird enough, you know. But um, but I always said, you know, if I could get you by any chance, then I would definitely talk about him. Well, thank I'm, thanks for inviting me. I hope I can uh, help insert those extra little extras that make Krampus weird again. Well, great. Well, I kind of want to get your take from the beginning. Let's assume that we have an audience of Americans who maybe have heard of Krampus and seen ads for the movie or something like that, but who really don't know any of the legends in detail. So what is Krampus? Well, uh, the first thing I would say to Americans, as you uh, as you mentioned, they may have seen the movie, is put all of that out of your head. <laughs> nothing to do with the creature. Um, the Krampus is, uh, it's an alpine phenomenon uh, for the most part in German speaking countries. Uh, so that would mean uh, Southern Germany and Bavaria and also uh, Western Austria, but it's, it is definitely throughout Austria. And it's known in Northern Germany, but it's not really a custom that's uh, embraced in, in the North. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the Krampus is associated with uh not with Christmas uh, to start with. It's not on December 24th or 25th. It's the Christmas season, but it, it would be uh, December 5th, the eve of, and December 6th, the day of St. Nicholas. So the Krampus is a, uh, he's a dark companion of St. Nicholas, who in these uh, regions is a gift bringer uh, who would visit homes, uh, at least in, in, in story and in some places is actually acted out. And in this, in that case, uh, the Nicholas would be a, a older gentleman. Well, it could be a younger person. It's actually a younger person usually, but a costumed as an older gentleman in a sort of medieval bishop's outfit, and he's accompanied uh-huh. by uh, usually maybe six Krampuses. And this is the very oldest form of the tradition. So the Krampus, this this whole thing is a good cop, bad cop routine. Basically, the Nicholas is is there to see how the <laughs> children have behaved and. Uh, and, and Krampus is there if they haven't. <laughs> uh, so there's a, there's sort of a Nicholas would in, in the old days it would be more Nicholas would be there to review how they've uh, if they've memorized their uh, catechism and that kind of thing, or if they have maybe they'd say you know say a prayer to show this uh, costumed Nicholas that they've been good little Catholic kids. Uh, this is and this is definitely a, a Catholic uh, tradition. Um, and if uh, and usually they have, but uh, there would always be a warning that would come with that, like uh, you've done well this year. But if you if you if you don't do well, here's what here's what you might be dealing with next year. And this, and I, I should point out, it's uh, the Krampus. Uh, <laughs> he's always there as a threat. Now, whether he actually smacks the kids is another question. But uh, this is sort of the, the I'm giving you kind of the primal <laughs> form of what later is it evolves and it's built on. But uh, 
this this is the kind of the legend of what the Krampus is. He's this he's gotcha. this character, this uh, demonic character that travels with Saint Nicholas to uh, kind of give you a hint of what hell might be like if you aren't uh, on board with the whole Catholic thing and whole good <laughs> Austrian citizen thing as you should be. <laughs> and uh, what's the oldest record of Krampus? that we have uh so the krampus tradition dating it is is kind of hard because well let's just start with the name the name krampus is not even uh it appears it doesn't really appear until the 1900s early 1900s it's not the thing is uh, there were all sorts of names for this figure Mm -hmm. before that became began to be used and it's this whole sort of cluster of traditions really is very regional and, you know, part of that is that this thing grew up in the Alps. And so you have these little communities that are in isolated valleys. They're, you know, they are isolated by the topography of the mountains. And so things evolve, things change and culture kind of spreads slowly in these regions. So, you yeah. know, this community might have one name and another might <clears throat> might call him something else. So usually some of the names just would mean devil or or uh, Klebof is another name that would be used. But mm-hmm. so Krampus kind of became got adopted in the early 1900s, and then so then things started uh, also being uh, sort of uh, sis, uh, standardized when uh, with the postal system. Oddly enough, the the Austrian postal system was one of the first national postal systems, and you, uh, I'm sure, listeners to the show have seen these uh, images from what were called Krampuskarten, the Krampus yeah. cards mm-hmm. that were sent out uh, around the you know around December 6th. And that kind of even just standardized look, because before that, he could look very different in different regions. So so we have this dark companion character in takes different forms in, in you know, this kind of the tighter around this Alpine area, we're calling the Krampus. But then, as I was about to say, I think, you know, your listeners have heard of Knecht Ruprecht and mm-hmm. Black Peter, Swatza Pete in different and further north. So um, it, he is part of this larger family. And then all of these have roots that go back to uh, really probably old carnival traditions, the season of carnival, the mm-hmm. the season. And uh, it's sort of hard to date because it's when do we start saying that's a Krampus? So there's a certain, there's a certain look that we associate with the Krampus, which is, you know, I would say is really from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And before that, uh, and, what he did or how he looked is definitely up for grabs. What he did, uh, this idea that he accompanies St. Nicholas. Um, now that actually can be dated quite a bit further back because there were, um, in the, uh, the chorister schools, the, or the schools for the, uh, uh, you know, the choir, the kids that would sing uh-huh. in the choirs in the, uh, 1200s, uh, they would have special, uh, games or game and, the play in German and Spiel are both the same word. And so it's kind of hard to know how they meant it, but gotcha. they would, there would be a, there were some traditions that would have a costume devil figure that would <clears throat> come out uh, with a Nicholas um, on St. Nicholas day. And Nick St. Nicholas day was kind of a day for uh, in the middle ages in these schools, it was a day for school kids to sort of play pranks on their teachers and kind of act out. So these kind of devil figures would merge with other kind of uh, mischief, fun and games type mischief. Uh, yeah. So the kids would kind of could, could take on the role of the devils too, or uh, it would be you know usually there would there are not I shouldn't say usually because I don't know how widespread this was. This is something I, I think you see in Bavaria. I don't think it happened in Austria really, 
so you have that you have that character that accompanies saint nicholas but then you have all sorts of other um the krampus is sort of shaped by all these other mid uh, winter traditions of you know other kinds of dark folkloric figures that have nothing really to do with they with the the church they were kind of more pagan or uh, at least matters of you know kind of folk catholicism so the yeah. the, the, the nicholas krampus combination is it was a way to you know that was a way to sort of add a sort of a instructive <laughs> instructive uh, quality to what's could be very a very mischievous uh, kind of night of uh, or day of kids playing pranks sure. in a way we we you know we used to do on halloween sure so it's kind of a, just all of these branches of all these things coming together over time so yeah Hundreds, there's there's traces of things that kind of grew into that's where the roots are and then and then but it's still developing all the way through through the uh intervening centuries to what we know as the krampus yeah and another name i've heard before is cert or kurt like c-e-r-t and i didn't know if that was something that's a, a, more of a czech name but it's a if yeah, you know, i think it's hungarian uh hungarian, okay. it's shared by i think it's might be, uh, yes, it might be used. Actually, you might be right. Maybe maybe Czech or they might use the same. They might use a similar name. But he's the, yeah, that character. That's I've seen that used. But and he's basically playing the same role as uh, mm-hmm. as uh, the Krampus. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, Czechoslovakia was very much under German influence for a long time. So they they definitely have the, the similar traditions. So you mentioned how it's different regionally too, even within Bavaria and Southern Germany yeah. and the whole, and all the Alps. Are there interesting versions of those that you find particularly odd? Yeah. As I said, the look of what this, the Krampus is, let me back up a little because I always feel like this should be emphasized. We have this idea of what a Krampus looks like again, because probably because of the postcards, unfortunately in the U S now it's because of the, Universal film from a few years ago. Yeah, but um, the so what he what he looked like what became standardized. But uh, all these different different valleys, as I was saying, would have different looks, and they still do. And it's actually in certain towns, uh, there's kind of a little bit of you know, there's a little local pride as to how your Krampus look looks. We have the we have the true legitimate Krampus. So <laughs> you'll see differences in the um, in the masks. Um, one of the things is the number of horns he has. Uh, Oh, wow. Modern, uh, because the postcards always would show a Krampus with just two horns, like a state, like a sort of traditional stage devil. Yeah. That's what we think of now. But in, uh, in some of the more, uh, and actually the, the region that I went to, because it was, I knew it was one of the oldest and it sort of maintained the tradition and kind of the oldest purest form. They, the Krampus there has multiple horns. Um, and you'll see it's in uh, the Algoi region in uh, southern Germany. It's kind of a little bit kind of west north of Bavaria, part of Bavaria. They have uh, they have some Krampuses that have cow steer horns, um, deer, and also they use deer horns. Some valleys will have something. Some places use um, something called a klapmau, which is like a spring operated uh, jaw that kind of flaps when you bob your head. <laughs> so there's all these different and there's different styles of kind of painting too. So there are a few communities that I can kind of recognize where the masks come from. You know, we have this sort of homogenizing influence now, so it gets a little harder. But another thing is, you know, these the the masks that are worn by people still in, today in these in events are, you know, uh, the each kind of group of Krampus will patronize a certain artist. So they will have that same style. And then because, you know, these are, it's a kind of traditionalist pr- practice 
the style will be something that's kind of inher- usually inherited or modeled after things that went before. So, you know, there's there's different different threads you can kind of look at, different styles of costuming. And that actually brings up something about how it is today, because now maybe from the old postcards or pictures, people have definitely seen St. Nick and a, and a Krampus or another dark figure like in someone's living room testing the kids. But that's not really the most common thing now uh, where Krampus uh, shows up now, right? Because you have the Krampus laughs or the Krampus runs. Yeah, I can explain a little bit about uh, it's a little confusing because uh, <clears throat> when people first hear about the Krampus, they hear kind of, I guess, the story is kind of mythological. <laughs> uh-huh. Who he is in folklore and mythology, which is this bad, the devil that comes along with Nicholas. Yeah. That's not really how he's encountered so much in modern Europe, um, you know, Germany, Austria, for the most part. Um he uh, so there's two things. There's the, the the thing I first described with Nicholas, somebody say costumed as a as a bishop, the bishop Nicholas, um, going house to house. It's called the house bazook, the house visit, is uh, a custom that's that's kind of acting out the actual myth of the Krampus and mm-hmm. Nicholas, and that only takes place in uh, these little house visits. Only take place in certain communities, and you know it's, it's it lends itself to like a, a, to a smaller town where people can kind of traverse all the neighborhoods, you know, on right, foot. Right. I mean, they, they lease trucks sometimes too, but it's kind of limited to that. And then what happened was um, that the original custom, the, that custom would kind of turn into something called the Krampuslauf, which just means the Krampus run or walk, um, which is you know closer to a, it's like a more like a Halloween parade we have. And that sort of, that basically evolved out of all of these little groups Krampus groups uh, with each with their own Nicholas and maybe six, uh, six or so Krampuses uh, crisscrossing the town. And, you know, people would come out to interact with them. The, you know, teenage boys might want to start something with the Krampuses, throw some snowballs and get chased or the girls might enjoy (laughs) screaming and running from them or that kind of thing. So you'd have this kind of commotion going on in the middle of the middle of the town and the Krampuses himself they might be liquored up and they might be a little rowdy. So there'd be uh, sometimes, you know, that, that one of the things is to roll, roll the kids and the roll, you know, when I say kids, it's going to, that means teenagers. They don't, for the right. culture, it doesn't really, uh, you don't see people in costumes interacting with little kids at all like this, but the older kids that kind of want, they're itching for the fight or the fun of it, you know, they'll roll them in the snow and stuff. And so what would happen was that this, all of this was, it would attract so much attention and could be a little chaotic, but they kind of made this uh, process a bit more systemic, so you'd have or standardized, uh, domesticated is actually a better word. And they would have kind of like create parade routes, and that gave birth to the the Krampus Run or the Krampus Lauf, which uh, you know was more of a it's more of a procession. So then you kind of lose the aspect of Nicholas visiting the house to test the children's morality and education and so forth, and it's more just Krampuses going down the street with their whips and, you know, playfully interacting with the people along, you know, gathered along the sides. And that's the, that's kind of what we've inherited in the U S more the Krampus runs or, I mean, I think that's pretty much the word everybody here in the U S uses. Uses. Yeah. I think too, that's, if I remember correctly, it was even before the movie came out, there were yeah. a couple of videos of that that started to really get passed around a lot mm-hmm. on like social media. And I think that's where a lot of people, at least honestly, I think that may be where I, one of the places where I first learned about. Yeah. Crampus. I think a lot of people, again, it's back to this. I think a lot of people say in the early two thousands or whatever, late late nineties, whatever. I think a lot of people thought that 
the Krampus was just a kind of a folklore figure and they didn't, and they saw the images, but they didn't realize anybody actually still enacted, you know, the, the story of this figure. And uh, so then people, yeah, those videos started appearing and people were like, wait, this still goes on. This is still a thing. And then and it, a lot of people in America got very excited about that, I think. Yeah. And they, you can actually do it, right? I mean, I know you started uh, one of the biggest ones, right? In California or helped start one of the biggest Krampus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And there, and there were like, uh, I don't know how many there are now. And then there were a couple dozen, I would say in various cities, everything's laid low this year because of right. the you know, sure. pandemic, but. Even though you're wearing masks, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot you can't explain in terms of what's going on there. So. <laughs> so now there's a whole industry almost, I guess you could say, of people making costumes here and not just the traditional ones. Um, and I follow a lot of those guys on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and it's just fascinating the work that they put into it. But now I know they're selling a lot to Americans too. Yeah, they started to, They, I know I was contacting people were like realizing that's a market, although with the shipping and everything, it, be- <laughs> it becomes, uh, you know, it's a little prohibitive for a lot of people, but sure. yeah, they realize there's an evolving market here. I mean, and honestly, you know, the the market for all of this gear and this artistry, you know, it's definitely experienced an explosion in in uh, in Germany and Austria. Uh, it was not, you know, as widespread. Like, uh, you know, Vienna is Vienna is far to the east of this region in the country in Austria, and they didn't really have even they didn't even have Krampus runs, even though it is Austrian, until this boom in the uh, early two thousands. So it's definitely. Uh, it's not just that Americans are picking it up. It's even, you know, the uh, German speakers are picking it up. And, you know, elsewhere in Europe, I know we we have uh, friends in England that do something in the town of Whitby. Uh, I don't know where else in Europe it's necessarily spread. I know there's some, there some small thing happening in London, but it seems to really caught fire. And I think America has such a, I guess, well, we're in California, so there's a big cosplay <laughs> culture. Yeah, that, true. You know, true. people working in the creative industries here. So it, it definitely caught fire here, but I think wherever there's, you know, wherever there's people that I think this is the artistry of making those suits and masks that attracts a lot of people. And the variety of them too is huge. I mean, if there's one thing about your book, that's fun. It's all the pictures that you have of different costumes and, and different regional variations and modern and, and older ones. And, you know, I'd say if someone's looking to reason to buy the book just the pictures alone is is good enough not in, a, in addition to the, all the history yeah there's pictures in there i think it's 150 or so. yeah yeah and but one thing i did notice is it seems like there's a wide variety of difference between sort of stylized masks that aren't meant to look like an actual creature but then there's also kind of like the one that's on the cover which almost looks like you know some kind of makeup for a movie yeah yeah, there's an evolution that happened. Um, so, again, if we go back to uh, the teens, 19 teens, uh, this tradition really wasn't practiced. Really, really had almost fallen out of uh, practice all over the Alpine regions that we're talking about. And um, in the Gesteinertal, which is just this little valley that's uh, like an hour and a half so from Salzburg, for instance, uh, that's kind of the one place, that's a, the area that I did visit for my book. That's like the one place where there was still some practice, but the artistry of the masks had really not taken the shape we know. Um, I have a friend and who is a great source uh, for the book because he happens to also be an anthropologist uh, from that region, uh, Mateus uh, 
uh, rest. Uh, and he grew up there and, and he, he talked about his, uh, like his grandparents, you know, a Krampus costume would be some old sheepskin rug that you found on the floor and you, you threw around your shoulders. And then the, <laughs> the masks were very crude. And in fact, the, uh, some of them would be paper mache, like, a, like carnival masks. Uh, this whole idea of a carved wooden mask that we look at and you're like, you, you look at those and you think, oh, that must be descended from sort of gargoyle carvings yeah. of the Middle yeah, yeah. But in fact, it's actually from the from the uh, teens and twenties. Um, I, oh wow! The name escapes me in it right now, but the, there was a particular artist who kind of solidified that style, and he had he was an art student in uh, at the uh, school of art in Munich, and he didn't even studied. A lot of people will say, um, uh, like Mateus, my my friend has friends in his anthropology department. They look at the mass and they think they look kind of African and. Uh, we were speculating that the, this artist probably did, you know, it was the 20s and primitivism was in. So sure. he may oh, have yeah. been influenced by the sort of thing that was, you know, influencing Picasso and so forth. Yeah, so yeah. There was this folkloric quality that was like, even then was uh, not necessarily inherited. It was, uh, I think it evoked what we think of when we think of an old tradition. That's interesting. Yeah. So this style of the 20s and 30s, uh, 20s and 30s, was still, um, you know, this this the one artist I'm thinking of. His masks are very valuable now, but it was copied in that valley, and it was a you know kind of basic uh, kind of the faces don't have a lot of depth, kind of blocky and. Mm-hmm. In fact, they traditionally they would say that there should only be three colors on the mask: black, white, and red. And oh wow, uh, I can't now. I can't, I'm, I'm gonna. I can't remember the symbol. There was some symbolism attached to that we can. We can say fire and sin, and I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, so they're very kind of uh, kind of uh, very stylized, very uh, sort of schematic uh, in a sense. And then, yeah, the 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 influence these masks, like the one on the cover of my book, they the Austrians uh, in that valley particularly, where they're more aware of what the traditional masks look like, they call them future masks or Hollywood masks. Or <laughs> so they're actually kind of what happened was, yeah, they, they, the, the American influence has contributed somewhat to, uh, you know, what we look at now and, and think of as strictly an old, an old Germanic custom. Yeah. It, uh, it's been through lots of uh, feedback loops. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Well, one thing about Krampus too, and you talk about this a lot in the book. I mean, one thing is, like I said, the book is titled Krampus, but actually, actually a really good portion of it is about all kinds of different Christmas history and different Christmas creatures, um, like the, the pear, which I think you're doing that, right? The, the pear, or the, the, yeah, the, the pear, uh, yeah. that's a good, that's a fair, that's a fair part of the book, actually. Um, that's something I, I was going to, I didn't want to talk about because it's a big part of this uh, whole history. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wanted to get into the Pershten, uh, P-E-R-C-H-T-E-N. That's plural. The Pershten is a singular. Um, and this is, uh, this figure is sort of the, um, the forefather of the Krampus. It's, it's this, uh, figure that kind of was, uh, pressed into the mold of the Krampus. Uh, he was a, this, he was a similar scary figure that would appear around Epiphany, which is January 6th, and it was kind of borrowed into the traditions of December 6th, St. Nicholas Day. So uh, these uh, characters, they're a little hard to define. Uh, they could be benevolent, or they could be uh, they could be malevolent, or and definitely ugly and scary, and that's the, definitely the more common form. 
but they uh, they don't have any so they don't actually have any association with the devil. They're they are more of a they're a pagan, not extra ecclesiastic tradition sort of. Right, tradition. Right. So I, I think it's it's pretty clear. I mean, it's pretty clear that this is the this is the prototype for the Krampus. Um, and, and this is also these characters are also something that really varies um, region to region, and also kind of over the over the centuries, really. Uh, December, I mentioned January 6th, but uh, that they kind of, they're associated also with Carnival, which is uh, can, that's officially the, di- the date the Carnival starts is January 6th, but obviously it goes into the spring later. And um, they're also associated with uh, the, the period that we call, we call them the 12 days of Christmas, but it's the right, 12th right. night in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a more, a uh, little bit more of an ominous period. The, the, the 12 nights, uh, is a kind of like a Halloween season in the winter. Um, and the Pershton are supposed to be out there <coughs> roaming, uh, roaming, you know, they're, it's, the veil is lifted and these creatures are out there either. And they need to be implored for good luck for the coming <laughs> year. So this, and so obviously uh, this period runs over new year too. So, so it's kind of like uh, they're associated with every, every, everything from the Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve through, uh, December 6th is really their period. So obviously running through New Year, New Year. And so kind of getting right with the Pesh would be part of what you would need to do. And there were little, uh, people would leave, actually leave out food offerings for them. The Pesh and Tish, the little Pesh table would be left set and their special, uh, special foods that they would, that they would eat, usually greasy foods, or there's something called Pesh and Milch, which is a, a kind of a, a porridge that was left out for them. And this idea was also uh, this sort of mythology was also something that would be embodied in costume traditions, but uh, it, that was the, the Paris tradition was the, the kind of more rockets wild version of the the Krampus had the chaperone of Saint Nicholas, so they didn't get too crazy. But the idea of dressing up in you know putting some soot on your face and putting on you know an old sheepskin and running around at night and banging on doors and windows and Turn, overturning things and demanding demanding uh, the fried donuts was a thing that was given out a lot it's kind of a, <laughs> still a carnival f- food that we associate with carnival but uh so think of it that way uh and there uh also uh there are also Pershton Läufer uh, runs laufs as you would call them in an americanized version um so there are these Pershton runs also that take place in uh german speaking areas that are around uh the, the january 6th but they do kind of start uh, earlier and they kind of overlap with the Krampus run. So it's kind of a second chance to get your horned beast on. <laughs> and they also are connected, or at least that period of time, right, is also connected to a figure named Pershta. Yes. And she's a bit like a witch and there are other sort of witch figures. Yeah. Around that not, time. Yeah. Right. yeah. Frau Pershta or Lady Pershta is, uh, she's so, it's one of the, uh, uh, She's sort of she's the sort of the embodiment of all of them, or she's sort of the representative. Uh, you know, just like you know, there's demons and the devil, so she would be the devil of this class of being. Uh, some some people there's some debate about how this figure came to be. Um, she is kind of also the just like we have a father. Or the Brits say have a father Christmas. There is uh-huh. could also be understood as mother Epiphany. Uh, Persht is a word that comes from an old. Uh, Bavarian word that mean it me- meant literally the shining night that that was a term that used for epiphany. Oh, so wow. the name is just related to that date, and the date is the one thing that c- 
kind of you can kind of anchor what is a Paris to the date and otherwise it gotcha. can become gotcha. can become lots of different things from you know kids dressing up causing mischief to uh, there's sort of acrobatic performers that appear at carnival <laughs> things. But uh, so yeah, Frau Pirsta was the date. She would have, she would also be said to uh, go door to door and check on the behavior, not really of all the children uh, in the household, but she was strictly uh, about the women, the young girls, and the uh, female adult female house servants that she would gotcha. check on their behavior. And her particular uh, preoccupation was spinning. It was uh, is the it, your all of your uh, flax or wool had to be spun by epiphany eve and it, were it not spun she had a number of like grisly uh, punishments in store for you she would uh they <laughs> there's different stories she would pull out your entrails and spin them herself into something or uh, destroy all of your uh, there's another poem that's on some broadsheet from the uh, 1500s where she tears all your dresses up and <laughs> destroys your dolls and burns that your your wool that you oh, spun wow. and that's funny. That's actually really close to the Icelandic Yule cat. Yeah. Uh, that the, the cat, if you don't have new clothes by Christmas, basically, of course, because you're supposed to make them. Yeah. Um, you get in trouble. I mean, the whole period is kind of a period of renewal. We need to freshen up. We need to get rid of the old and we need to make sure the new is in order as, to, as sort of a symbolic of how the coming year will be. So, yeah, clean. I mean, cleaning the house also was part of uh, Perishta's uh, dominion. I mean, she would also make sure that the house was orderly. Uh, there's even a, there's a form of uh, Perst in uh, the Rauris Valley in, in Austria. They call them Schnabelperchten, which means beaked Perchten. And they look like birds. They're, they look, they're, yeah, I love these guys. Yeah, yeah. they're kind of creepy, kind of cute. They almost look like a muppet. Or, but um, they would go, they still have this practice. They go home to home with uh, brooms uh, to represent that cleaning function. And what they actually do is uh, rather than clean, they'll, they mess with the, it's, it's, first of all, these aren't, these aren't women. They're they're It's a sort of considered a female character because they're, well, they're dressed in drag. They're wearing aprons and kind of old granny clothing, mm-hmm. but it's guys. And so it's guys having fun with the occupants of the house. So even though the brooms are symbolic of cleaning, what they usually do is like they sweep ashes out from the fireplace and, mess things up until they're and everybody has to stand back if you don't want them you can't if you it's bad luck to you know interfere with them or not do what they want so they carry brooms and another thing they carry is uh these sort of big uh, big prop uh scissors made of wood and the scissors represent this uh but has this i mentioned the pulling out the entrails but she's especially said to like have a carry a sickle or a knife or I guess scissors also would, by extension, would be something she would cut you open with. And <laughs> she not only pulls out the entrails, but she was uh, said to uh, hollow you out and then replace everything. I'm not quite sure why we did this little bit of kind of taxidermy, but she would hollow you, pull you out your entrails, and then she would stuff you back with straw or rocks or some kind, whatever kind of garbage, and then sew you back up with, a, <laughs> with an iron needle. They always said there's iron is associated with her. Sometimes they'd say she had an iron nose or iron warts or an iron ass or something to different kinds of ways to make her sound monstrous. But these figures, the Perist and the the different witch figures, they're not Nicholas companions. They're from assumably some other tradition. Yes. The uh yeah, well they're they're pagan. Because she's enforcing the uh, kind of approved domestic order, she f- sort of fills the role of Nicol- Nicholas, but it, she doesn't have anything to do with the church really. Um, and and also this, <clears throat> it's a little unclear whether this story was acted out by costumed performers in terms of, uh, I don't know, we don't really know. I mean, I guess there are a few cases 
where she goes house to house and there's some kind of checking on how things are maintained. But mm-hmm. really, the Pashtun aren't associated as much with good behavior as the Krampus is in a, his sort of inverse way. Gotcha. So usually it's more of a raucous kind of nighttime mischief making. That's pretty cool. And we're getting all these other sort of darker characters around Christmas, but there are also other darker companions, right? We talked, you mentioned connector correct. And, um, and there are other versions of that. You have a whole bunch of wonderful pictures of different yeah. types of creatures that, that some are on their own kind of like the parish, but then there are others that go with Nicholas. Yeah. Uh, for instance, yeah, there's some of them are herd animals and some aren't. That's a big distinction with, uh, like the Knecht Ruprecht character in Germany uh, is always a single, there's always a singular, singular Ruprecht. It would seem silly to Germans to see multiple Ruprechts, but uh, the Black Peter in Holland, there are, are multiples. So it's kind of one way you can tell the Ruprecht's costume was probably rough, dark cloak. And uh, he used to definitely have his face black with soot uh, and a black, long black beard. And that, you know, uh, going back to these kind of proto Krampuses, that's probably the same look they had, but it, mm-hmm. but uh, you can tell it, he he became this individual character, not a herd animal. So that's kind of one way to kind of tease out all the strains. Is this a, is he a herd animal or is he an individual? Um, so yeah, we have Ruprecht. Um but a lot of the characters that you're thinking of, some of them are like uh, embodied. They're associated with different days in this uh, winter season in the Twelve Nights. Um, there, uh, even early before that, the the whole uh, winter season starts. The traditional beginning of winter in the Middle Ages was November 11th, Saint Martin's Day, and there are some uh, Saint Martin's figures that uh, Nussmarten is a nut Martin, and it's a character that looks like Ruprecht in terms of kind of a rough cloak and uh, faces sooty, and they have long flax beards, and they. Would uh, it's a in a so one Bavarian town. Oh, the name is escaping me now. But they would go go around and throw nuts on the ground, and then kids would dash to get them, and then they get <laughs> there's a whip to kind of make it more fun. <laughs> so there's a Saint Martin's there's a Saint Martin's devil. Uh, Saint Saint Barbara's Day has uh, the wild barbers they call them, uh, and they're uh, they're played by women actually, which is a bit of an exception for this sort of uh, tradition. And their uh, costumes are basically old kind of granny clothes, but the Masks are covered with lichen and moss and things from the forest. So they're kind of, uh, there's a, something called uh, Musloita or Musfallen or Vibin, I should say. Uh, moss people is a kind of folkloric figure. And so it's kind of got attached to St. Saint, Saint Barbara for some reason. Um, and they also have switches. Uh, and then St. Thomas, uh, a bloody Thomas, I should say, on St. Thomas Day is a sort of another kind of inverted bad guy of the Saints' Day. Uh, Bloody Thomas is uh, associated with a particular forest, and uh, the player is more prominent in uh, the uh, what's it, the Odenwald, and I think in uh, north, yeah, northeastern uh, Bavaria, he uh, he carries a big bloody hammer, and he will snap children <laughs> that are out after after dark. Um, the the funny thing is, uh, they think that where this tradition came from is uh, Saint Thomas Day, uh, the twenty, it's the twentieth. 20, 20, 20, 20, 22nd of uh, 
in December uh, was a, a traditional day for butchery in that region for sausage making. So they, they think that the tradition probably began with all these uh, butchers walking home from their bloody <laughs> on that day. And this sort of stories evolved about these scary, scary people that are out on St. Thomas night. Yeah, I mean, so there's all of these. It's not just it's not just one or two days. This whole season has has characters like this. There's a there's a kind of a paradigm that kind of covers all of this idea of these ghosts and uh, spirits uh, out in the season. It's the wild hunt in Germ- in England. Mm-hmm. We have it in English and Germany. Germany or German speaking countries, Villiagt or, or wild army, furious army and in English, it's kind of to me. It's kind of the framework that all this hangs from. This idea that you know spirits are are loose and traveling uh, en masse is the kind of the thing that makes it distinctive. I mean, yes, in the, usually in the sky, but or over the ground, somewhat over the ground. But uh, this idea that there are these ghostly processions is kind of uh, that's what they have it in they have it in Spain uh, and uh, lesser extent, I think, in Italy, but in France, definitely. And up in the uh, Holland and Scandinavian countries, it's definitely part of the folklore. So I think that's kind of the generic uh, uh, <laughs> spooky nighttime, a spooky oh, yeah. time visitor uh, pattern that a lot of these things fall out of. And I think most people, when you mention that sort of ghost nights or something like that, mm-hmm. of course, they're going to think of Halloween. And and I think I was told, I can't remember how young I was, that yeah, supposedly Halloween was the night there where your ancestors or just ghosts or whatever the the veil between the worlds was a little looser. And so it was easier to pass through for Halloween. But now with all these stories you're talking about, that's sort of the whole Christmas season. Well, yeah, there's kind of, I mean, there is, there is actually a sort of slight kind of a, the calendar. I I, I think in my book, I was referring to it as sort of calendrical like slide where mm-hmm. Halloween is kind of the beginning. Of, I mean, Halloween's the Celtic uh, winters starting, but it depends. All of these seasons and, and the associated practices would have to do with the climate and how effective your agricultural systems are. When do you have to put up food for the winter? So when do we start calling it winter? So some of these dates, you know, they uh, if we're done with the farming, farming and the pasture pasturing and the, all the uh, you know agricultural type work, yeah. At a certain point in the year, then you start telling stories. So that could be earlier or later. Um, so there's kind of a, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I didn't really get into Halloween too much, but I think, uh, knowing, you know, knowing for instance, that November 11th was the beginning of winter in medieval, uh, Germany and I, and, uh, England too, I think, uh, and so other, other places in the continent, but seeing how that's, you know, that's not the beginning of winter anymore. So you can kind of see the shift. The winter has kind of become later, what we consider winter traditions and, winter customs they've kind of it's kind of slid later over the centuries so i think halloween is kind of i think it's the same a similar case oh i was going to ask about one guy you've got a picture he's wearing a um a suit with basically a lot of pine cones stuck to him Uh, yeah he's a type of pest uh it's called the the zapfenmandel the pine cone man um and uh he really only appears i guess they there's like just a couple of towns where he appears so yeah, the Pearson have all these different looks. There, he's kind of more of a. There's a group of Pearson that look like carnival figures, kind of. They're just so varied, and some of them are. They call them Schön Pearson, beautiful Pearson, and they look like. Uh, this is in a. This is again in the Gasteiner Tal, the uh, area where the Krampus tradition was well preserved. The Pearson tradition is preserved there like nowhere else, and that's where you see that these 
other forms of, of the Pershton that don't really resemble the Krampus at all. They look, they're the, the good Pershton look quite different. And they have some figures that are the called the Shiach Pershton, which are the bad Pershton that do look like Krampuses. But yeah, so the, the Schön Pershton have these headdresses that tower, uh, you know, eight, <laughs> 10, maybe there's some 10 footers. Oh yeah. Incredible. Yeah. You got some amazing pictures yeah, of those guys. Beautiful like, kind of- yeah. One guy looks like he's almost got like a mini golf thing on his head. <laughs> That's what it yeah. looks like. Yeah. <laughs> So that, that's why I say it's hard to describe what the Pershton are. And then also they were, Pershton were a kind of uh, acrobatic carnival performer in some accounts. If you go back to, I think this is like the 15, 1600s, and they would do these, uh, they were known for uh, pole vaulting, or like sort of vaulting different kind of uh, acrobatic stunts, including including uh, jumping with poles and stuff. And uh, so then there's this, there is a, there's also a, there's a region where the, there's different dances that were associated with the Pechton. Um, there's some that kind of mimic a threshing floor dance with this, uh, stomping and slamming the floor. Uh, and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of this. It's been a while since I talked about these guys, but, uh, are some of their costumes have these long, uh, pheasant feathers that look, that look like our rooster feathers and they look. They look like giant roosters. So yeah, you have a lot of sort of carnivalesque costumes that you wouldn't recognize as being similar to the Krampus. But it, it seems that some of this kind of uh, festive play acting that was happening in that period, uh, because, uh, for instance, this Gesteinertal is on a trade route from Italy, it seems that some of this is, some of these forms were probably uh, came from you know, the Venetian carnival, uh, it's, you know, Venice actually isn't all that far from, from this area. Yeah. So it, it seems like some of the, yeah, the, the, the Schrenkest and like we, you're describing with the uh, towering headdresses and so forth, they, uh, they think it's kind of a kind of peasants attempt to kind of mock the kind of, uh, finery of the, um, elite classes that wore <laughs> it out in the carnival. And that's one theory, but it's definitely a theory that's gained some traction. So yeah, what, what the Pershton are, it's a kind of, it's almost like a name that was grabbed onto to, to talk about anything that happened around Epiphany. And then as it now it's only thought of as sort of a second cousin's poor man's Krampus. When you can't let go of Krampus, you celebrate it all the way through January. But yeah, it, it, what it was, uh, what it was earlier is uh, a bit of a mystery. I would say that the uh, one thing that seems pretty consistent is that Pearson are figures that are supposed to, they do some kind of, performance they visit your house they may threaten you at night by throwing rocks on your roof but they may uh there's other regions where they and again with the gastinatal they there's certain dances that they would do house to house and that's considered a kind of blessing on your house and then you are sort of obliged to give the troops some food or money and that kind of seals the deal that you actually receive the good luck for the year Hmm. so they're bringers of good or bad luck basically one thing you could be probably say I can say with some, with some certainty. <laughs> and the one other creature that seems pretty common that you mentioned in the section is goats. That that having all over. Yeah. collections of goats are at Christmas time is and now in Scandinavia I know about the Yule goat. Yeah, um, and the the giant even the goat that they set on fire the the giant. Thing oh, and that, G- Godfrey or get yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. The the goat. So these uh, cost little costume bands that roam. Around the Christmas time, uh, you can find them in Russia. I mean, the further north and, uh, you, you know, going up north and east in Poland, uh, you're kind of getting out of the German kind of Alpine region I've been talking about. Northern Germany has a lot of goat figures that visit. It's, there's a stork, a goat, and a bear that are traditional costumes for hmm. uh, costume like, uh, again, these, these little troops 
handful of people will go door to door and you know perform some kind of slapstick play or sing some song and get some uh it's like it is well again this is like the trick our trick-or-treating customs very mm-hmm. much yeah um so yeah the goats will you know, a traditional figure and i you know i think the goats are associated with i think it's associated with fertility you know you want your business to be fertile and you want your family to be be fertile in those days and yeah. uh, but uh yeah i don't think it's necessarily you know i i don't think it's necessarily the sort of satanic thing that uh you know people would want to make it out right, right. the 19th century occultism but yeah goats cool. are everywhere uh one of the goats that actually you do find a goat figure in uh alpine mythology that is considered sometimes they call it a friend of the krampus it's the habergeis which is uh one of these uh in the gasteinatal in the persian parades where we were talking a moment ago about the pinecone man. The Havergeist is always going to be part of that. Um, and it's a strange looking costume. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's more than, again, this is more than just a sort of folklore story. There are folklore stories about these, but they do embody the character dressing up. Uh, the costume looks like a, um, it has a goat, carved goat head with a clap jaw. So a spring kind of spring activated jaw, the operator can mm-hmm. snap at people. Um, and then uh, <laughs> it, in some cases they actually used a horse. It's like the Marilud, that uh, Welsh thing, the mm-hmm. Welsh uh, tradition. So uh, very much. And the neck is really long, which is odd. It doesn't look like a goat. It looks kind of like a giraffe. And then under the, so you have this puppet head basically at the end of the pole, and then you have the sort of uh, draped figure, you know, underneath, kind of yeah. like off of a pantomime horse. Um, and the reason the left neck is long is so that the uh, it's a, a thing that was kind of used in. Uh, I mean, it just works as a carnival, as a sort of you know a carnival type gag. Uh, yeah, person operating can stand at a distance and then lower the head like a boom over the somebody and. Uh, <laughs> snap at them snap them yeah, yeah the habergeist is known for snapping uh hats off the spectators <laughs> at uh, at uh, the nick saint nicholas plays which is something i actually failed to mention as one of the sources of this tradition but nicholas plays were um uh it's definitely an alpine tradition and uh, they were uh the first place you see the krampus he's a kind of different character and the in the scenes with the krampus are limited but there is a scene with Nicholas um, giving gifts to good children and the Krampus is running amok. So, and these, this is, these plays are also uh, put on by small little uh, troops that would go house to house or go to an inn or the, uh, the town square. And so it's another kind of type of roving theater. Yeah. And you even uh, dramatize a few pieces of that in um, your show in Bone and Sickle, if in the Krampus episode, I believe, right? Yeah, I found some. Uh, I, I found some old scripts. Usually, now these actually they actually aren't written down usually, but some uh, kind of bookish uh, high school teacher in in Bavaria had uh, published some uh, one of the scripts. So yeah, we when I actually translated and uh, performed one of those, at least a part of it. Some of it is a bit too. Uh, Pious, I think, to be of much interest to some modern audiences. Um, <laughs> scenes with the Krampus are always fun. The Krampuses were uh, very loquacious back then. They used to, uh, you know, crack, not crack, well, they, I think they were funny. I don't know if they were cracking jokes exactly, but they were, they, in the plays, they definitely were, they were more than just characters that ran around. They actually would uh, speak about the kids that they'd been spying on during the year and talk about how terrible their behavior has been and how they can't wait to bite, you know, destroy them or carry them off in their sack. <laughs> it's always a question what the Krampus is going to do with the bad kids. I mean, yes, there's the threat of swatting them with switches, but 
also uh, there's the notion that he's going to carry them off away from right. them. There's an old, I mean, there's uh, the boogeyman in Germany is called the man with the sack. So there's this kind of <laughs> intrinsic notion that bad children are carried off in a sack. So that Krampus sort of borrows that. That's definitely all over the postcards too. Yeah, there's yeah. yeah, putting them in a sack, and then what he does with them is like some. I think I've you know I read throws them in the lake, takes them into a cave, throw, brings them down to hell. Certainly, we don't know what happens. He eats them. We don't. There's different kind of sort of hints about what might happen to the bad kids. <laughs> but the important thing is, your kid doesn't want to get in the sack. That's kind of major point. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Krampus runs that are going on today, both in in Europe and. And the new ones here. Uh-huh. Um, I, I get the sense from different things that I've read and from some of the descriptions, uh, because your book opens actually with descriptions of some of the actual things in the small town when you were there. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because it seems like the more traditional thing is that they're not completely organized and that even sometimes the troops can get into sort of ceremonial fights Yes, that might be a little less ceremonial as the drinking goes on and stuff like that. <laughs> and so it seems really like the European version seemed really fun, <laughs> if, if not dangerous, but, but here it seems like they're much more wear a costume, show it off, walk around and people take videos and stuff like that. Is that, is that kind of true? Yes, I think so. Um, it's also, I don't, you know, I don't know what, obviously things that will change this year. Uh, the, some of the, the, the town that I describe is very adamant about keeping its traditions, you know, the way they've been. Yeah. There are t- certain towns that are actually known for being more dangerous. In fact, so much so that they actually discourage visitors from coming. Oh, wow. Certain, certain regions uh, in uh, East Tyrol that are even people in Austria will tell you, yeah, they're pretty rough there. We don't, we don't know about going there. Uh, the, and sometimes, and it's, you know, depends because the, the dynamic is about, you know, 20 something teenage boys, you know, drunk, probably, yes, drunk, uh, trying to start, you know, trying to prove their, it's like the running of the bulls in, in, uh, East Tyrol. Uh, so you have that, you know, it's can be very kind of violent, but these, even the, with the parades where they, like, as I described them as a little bit more kind of domesticated, yeah. even those have, you know, they, they lost the right to use fire. And a lot of, they used to have lots of kind of fire stunts that they would do blowing fire and, uh, torches and you know so those are falling under some kind of control uh the people you know that i was talked to interviewing and talking to in preparation you know in writing the book they taught they sort of lamented this idea that they would set up um you know fencing along the parade route so that there could be you know to minimize direct kind of contact or brawling or anything like that yeah. so they're kind of a stanchion set up and so there is you know the it's falling under a little bit more control on uh, even in europe um but Yes, the idea that it should be, <laughs> the idea that it should be a little wild is something that's kind of that's firstly maintained in certain regions. Yeah. Uh, there, I know the the area I've been talking about. There was some effort one year to kind of uh, consolidate all of these like troops that were running through the towns, crisscrossing this way and that, and I suggest they all go down this one main street, which you know makes sense because it's kind of the main drag. Mm-hmm. The troops all agreed among themselves not to even use that, even though it'd be the convenient <laughs> road to use, not to use it. And there's also, you know, there's attempts, I think there were, because it's like, it's a thing that belongs to, um, the tradition belongs to teenage boys, 20. I mean, there are women associated with it, but to be honest, it's, it's, these are traditional reasons and it's more of a, a young men, boys thing. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, you know, they, they don't want, they don't want to play the game. They enjoy, you know, it's their little, it's kind of their outlet for sure. the year. 
And, you know, uh, so there have been attempts to, they, wanna, they wanted to move up a lot of these festivities, start them earlier to, uh, or start them, start them earlier to correlate with the beginning of the ski season. And there's different attempts, there have been different attempts to kind of commercialize what goes on. But it's something that's kind of, it's remained in, in the areas where they are concerned about the tradition, uh, something that's very grassroots. And it's also, you know, even though I describe it as being, you know, kind of rough <laughs> ruffians and people, you know, causing trouble. It's also like, it's been emphasized to me by, you know, participants. It's one of the few times people just open up their homes and they go, you know, and everybody else's, everybody's house is open and they're going in and out. And people actually, you know, get to know each other in a way they, they wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, that's really cool. How did you get into this project? Were you always interested in Krampus or Christmas history or was there some other angle? Well, um, in as an undergrad, I, I learned, uh, studied German, German literature, learned gotcha. German. Um, uh, and my family was German, but not, uh, from that region and not, you know, for a few generations back, my grandparents spoke German, but not, at, not really that much, not at home. So it wasn't that really, it was, <laughs> it was just my sort of interest in German culture and folklore and mythology, but also, uh, I, I, I was a horror kid. I loved horror. I loved mm -hmm. horror movies. And, yeah. uh, I also, uh, I'm also an artist and I, uh, you know, I, I like to make, costumes and sculpt and so i've also made and sold masks too so the challenge of kind of making those was part of it too that's great but that came after that i'd written the book the book was just sort of a the the book actually came about because i i had a chance to be in austria during the krampus mm -hmm. i started doing research about where would be a place to see this the really wild stuff and the really yeah. original stuff what's you know what's the last frontier that's going to get <laughs> Uh, probably changed in another few decades. So uh, it was kind of a, I grew out of my research for just, just trip research really. And then I made some contacts when I was there and kind of followed up after the trip. And yeah, so I kind of just, uh, you grew out of a <laughs> obsession to see it in person, uh, to get jostled and swatted by some Krampuses. <laughs> That's great. Well, it turned out wonderful. And you've got so many different aspects of the the regional variations and all the pictures too i know i've said that before but just how good the pictures are in here and just to give you a sense of the variety of the different costumes and and the ways that the the traditions look thank you i mean i couldn't imagine doing the book without pictures it's such a visual feast just oh yeah the artists do it's uh yeah so much so much variety and a lot of the, you know, again, most of the pictures were just provided by the the carvers, the mask makers, or the troops and people. They were like, you know, they were proud that people were interested in seeing their work. So it was kind of uh, easy to get most of them. Yeah. And there is a whole, really a whole little community online of people sharing pictures and yeah. of masks throughout the year as they make them and different parts of the costumes and whatnot. That's actually, the more I knew about that, the more I started to think that the Krampus loves where they actually wrestle and, and fight. I'd be too afraid I was going to break my stuff. <laughs> well, what's interesting is the, uh, in East Tyrol where they have this, uh, the Krampus doesn't have horns. Uh, so, and that's, it's for because the horns would break off and because, well, they probably injure somebody too. Right, right. It's a very distinct, you were asked, we were talking about regional differences. It's called, they call them Klaubof there, but that's not only, that's not the word just used there. It's, it is the Krampus. I mean, it's the same idea, but yeah, he's, he's one of the, he's one of the only uh, unhorned version of the Krampus that exists still. And that's the reason. <laughs> Well, you also mentioned that this may be getting commercialized and tamed and domesticated pretty soon. So I guess I do have to ask, what did you think of the 
the big Krampus movie. And then I got to ask, have you seen any of the smaller like B movie horror movies about him that have come out? Yeah, I saw, I did see the fish. Isn't there, wait, is there one with William Shatner? I'm trying to read. Oh, is there? I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I'm thinking that. Um, there was something. Oh yeah, there is. William Shatner is a radio host. He's kind of the framing device for the story. Uh, it's so there's a Krampus fighting St. Santa Claus. I think. Oh yes. Yep. Yeah, that's... yeah. It's available. It's a, it was, I don't think it went to theaters, but it's yeah. available. Uh, the, the, well, uh, to be, uh, uh, to be sure, <laughs> it, the film actually helped a lot with just people to recognize the word and know it's something associated. It's some kind of monster thing associated with Christmas. Yeah. And, and I think from, you know, the discussion we've had, if anybody's seen the film, you know, you can tell us not only not much to do, with what I've been talking about. Um, they actually, because we're in Los Angeles, they actually approached our group. They, uh, I went to a early press screening. I guess they thought I was going to be a positive influencer that was going to promote their thing. They wanted to us kind of dovetail into their promotional yeah. activities. And, you know, I, I like horror films. I, if I want to make a horror comedy, I like those too. I just, I thought it was you know, apart from it being folklorically accurate, that's fine. It doesn't need to be, but I didn't think it was a very, I didn't find it very funny or scary or any of those things. I just found it kind of tedious and not, not and sad. Um, kind of me through it, actually. I, I, uh, I thought that, uh, you know, the Krampus mythology, the way the story, you know, we all think, oh, the Germans are such terrible disciplinarians are so cruel, but this creature, there was kind of no rhyme or reason about who got yeah. killed by yeah. it. And that's not, the, that's not how it's presented. And the thing is, you know, uh, as far as working with something, somebody like that, we actually, actually, they rented one of some, one of my suits for some uh, Mexican Telemundo. Apparently. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I was happy to do that, but I didn't want to like, yeah, I wrote a bad review of it uh, early on, which I guess they were mad, they were mad about. But um, the, as, as far as like, you know, I, I also feel like because our group, we've had a, a number of uh, individuals and Austrian uh Troop members, one, an entire troop, one year came and participated in our Los Angeles Krampus run, and I do feel like I there's a certain element of not wanting to see their tradition uh, uh, Americanized, Americanized, yeah, and misrepresented as you know something that's uh, yeah just misrepresented. So uh, no Austrian likes that film. I can tell you that. So <laughs> a little bit out of allegiance to the groups that have been really helpful and friendly and you know, really should own the tradition. I, I didn't really want to help out with that film or help, help promote it or anything. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I won't go to get into detailing what was not, obviously really almost nothing was traditional about it. Yeah. And there's, they really don't give much folklore at all in the movie. No, and they, just... go, the odd thing is they go to, they go to the effort of, they have a, a German or Austrian, I think possibly actress who tells the, they have the little animated flashback mm-hmm. where it explains it's there to insert the folklore and it's completely fabricated folklore. So it's <laughs> odd that she would, they would go and explain, this is where it all comes from when in fact it's, you know, nothing to do with that. Um, yeah. I, I wish them well. I don't, I don't, I actually didn't even really care for the creature design. I thought it was kind of like a big static lump that mm-hmm. looked awkward when they used, when they did animate it. Uh, who wore a Santa suit, if I recall yeah, correctly, that, right? Like he's got, that, he has some kind of coat on that's. Yeah, that kind of, the, the thing is that kind of firmed up the whole idea that the Krampus is evil Santa. There are two ideas that are like the American, like the fallacies that I'm, like, I'm always ready to hear because I uh, know I'll hear them is the the Krampus is an evil Santa or Santa's enemy. I mean, obviously it's not even Santa Claus himself himself that it really he's related to. Right. But, 
yeah, he's neither of those things. So, I mean, he's, he's an accomplice of St. Nicholas. He works with him. He's right. just he's a bad right, left hand guy. So if someone is interested in, at least in the U.S., seeing a Krampus run, is there like one place where you can find out where they're run? Like, is there any sort of Krampus organization? There's no, I think you have to search. There is some Facebook group, but I think it's more for organizers of events. And honestly, you know, good luck this year. I, I think most, I don't sure, think a lot of things sure. are happening. Um, just, yeah, I would just Google Krampus run, you know, and see what comes up uh, <laughs> so in, in near near you. Um, I If somebody wants to message, you know, if you want to pass on an email, if they're like near a town where I know there's one, and maybe I can help them out. But Great. I think it's a matter of Googling for the most part. I've looked and I'm, I'm outside of Chicago and I'm, there was one year where they said someone was going to come in and do something, but I could never find, never find a lot. Doesn't but. Chicago have a German Christmas market? Yep. Yep. I, I think there was a costume, one costume person showing up as Krampus. It's not the same, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one, it's always hard because they hold it in one tiny little square yeah. in the park downtown and it's so many people go. It's almost yeah. impossible to get through, but it's still fun. I still go. Well, I definitely want to talk about your show and um, Bone and Sickle is the name of your show. And you do a lot of folklore. You talk about Krampus. Krampus is in there along with, with some of these other creatures. But maybe say a little bit about that and what the genesis of it was and what people can find. Yeah. Uh, Bonicycle, basically, it did grow out of the same interest, that uh, overlap of my love for folklore and horror, as I said. Um, originally, it was going to be, uh, originally, I conceived it as a method, way, way to kind of make hay out of doing research for a book and I was going but then I found that the show became so time consuming uh it's you know every couple of weeks I feel like I'm writing a dissertation we do <laughs> I do some pretty deep research on the topics um yeah, well they're incredibly informative I mean it's not just you sitting around chatting about something I mean you really no. <laughs> dig into what's going yeah, on and yeah and I will I use lots of I mean I'll look at foreign languages that I don't understand and you know try, try to get my best from Google Translate and uh, you know most of the resources are um books it's interesting you know researching folklore um I usually I tend to use books from the or like the late the 1800s or early 1900s. A couple of reasons. I mean, uh, there are certainly some misconceptions about what was going on. You know, what, what was the purpose of different various like folk rituals? But right. you know, I usually put that kind of that kind of interpretation aside. But a lot of these things were uh, still alive in those days, so people were closer to them. The other thing is uh, using old books like I do. Uh, a lot of, well, like with the Krampus movie we're talking about, it's hard to do any kind of online research and get past all of the kind of, there's a lot of, when the first, when the Krampus Wikipedia entry first went up, I, I know it was riddled with all sorts of errors that were propagated all through the internet. So sometimes you cut through that or to cut through how the characters used in a certain video game or Harry Potter movie, mm. you have to go back to some older sources. And it also kind of, uh, I like the language of the old sources. Uh, we kind of, I've incorporated um, the kind of that into my show. The There's a framing device for the show where uh, I uh, live, I, I hate to say it, this it's is made up, but <laughs> I, I live in sort of a, a sort of but there are pictures on the website. How can it be made up? <laughs> it's uh, the all of the show is broadcast or from a sort of um, Edward Gorey Adam Charles Adams slash yeah, the Manor House Library. And so that just sort of fits in with using all of our books from the 1800s. And I have an assistant who does all the readings, uh, Mrs. Carswell, who actually had a lovely uh, podcast of her own called. Uh, uh, 
cabinet of curiosities. Uh, it's not, she's not doing it anymore, but, uh, yeah, so we trade off. She reads all it. I, I do make a point of using, um, cause I am an amateur, not an academic historian, but I do believe in using primary sources. So she mm-hmm. reads the original sources and they're, you know, it's really enlightening to look at the, how, what kind of language is used. It's, you see how much is like hidden in the language that you didn't quite, you know, that's lost. And when you kind of rephrase things. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, we, we tell the stories and I use lots of, we, the whole thing's sort of to a background of music and sound effects, which makes it ridiculously labor intensive, but I hope after (laughs) No, I believe I can understand. I've tried to do a few in the past that were more like what you do and the amount of time it takes to do it is (laughs) so much harder than having an interview like this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Between doing a, I mean, it's a, the show's kind of across between me giving a talk and a, you know, a lecture and yeah. a video play. So it's yeah. organized material for the talk. And then suddenly it's like, and now we need sound effects and music, right. but I, you know, I enjoy, I mean, it's really fun. It's fun. I, I feel like I'm connect. I connect with people that are interested in what I like to study this way. In a way it's more immediate than a book, a book is such a slow, long process and fading returns on your effort in terms of remuneration. Mm-hmm. And there's something immediate about this. And I also, I mean, I, I worked in animation. I've done, Audio. St- I mean, it's just fun to have all the different media to play with. As soon as you get bored doing research, it's time to start doing post-production, which is a whole different skill set. Oh, so. yeah. Well, that's wonderful. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is whether you think it's time for Christmas to get a little creepier again, because everything that you talk about is how, like we were just saying about how there's a connection to the real darker side of whatever is going on at that time. And I feel like maybe, you know, even Santa Claus used to be a little scarier. Like the older Santa Claus would carry around switches and modern Santa would never do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, uh, to be good, I have to put out there that I was a horror kid all along. So I can't really give an impartial answer, but yeah, the Santa Claus, even, you know, even in my, like when I was a kid in my imagination, there was something kind of creepy about, you know, yeah. that's a stranger that comes in your house and supposedly flies and is ageless. And so I think that there's something, you know, I think obviously, you know, the genera- generations we're talking about now, there is a craving for, uh, there is a craving for the something, you know, otherworldly and magical. We aren't a religious culture really anymore. We lost that. But I think you see that same desire for otherworldly in the, uh, you know, the huge market for horror and fantasy. Uh, and, you know, you look at something like uh, Comic-Con, it, people are you mm-hmm. know, so hungry for this sort of thing because it's not fulfilled elsewhere. And the Krampus tradition is one, you know, because it's, it's not just, it's yes, it's cosplay, but it's something with some older roots. So I think to a lot of people, they, you know, they feel like some sort of connection to something older, which is important. Uh, and then, you know, as honestly, it's becoming a bit of a tradition for even in America, there are people you know, bringing their kids that went the, for the things we do for, you know, went six years ago. So there's that, you know, the desire to connect with something that's traditional and old, uh, with something that's otherworldly. And, you know, honestly, the Krampus, it's a great way to get your kids to behave too. <laughs> so <laughs> side to it. <laughs> I think also, you know, the, the winter season, I think fall, we, you know, we, uh, we all experience it more in fall, especially if we actually have a season, you know, the turning of the season, uh, kind of taps into something and we associate it with Halloween and, you know, in our culture. And it's, there's something about having the outer world kind of connect with what your, uh, these patterns of stories that you're kind of, you know, embracing that time of year. So 
there's something I think uh, I think there's something about the cold, you know, colder weather, gray skies that makes people more introverted and mm-hmm. maybe a bit more grim. And some <laughs> there's some nice connection between the outer world and the inner world, and in these in winter stories that are a little a little darker. You know, we had I mean, we all grew up with uh, the Christmas Carol, and we I know as a kid I thought that's such a strange fluke, a Christmas ghost story, and then mm-hmm. obviously starting this research we all and i'm sure you've talked you know talk about a lot of things in your show like that where you realize yeah. it's part of the christmas season it's been part of it for centuries yeah i always every year we read a ghost story together so i get people who listen will will each read a little section of it and do it together, yeah we, so. i started it on my show too and i know uh monster talk podcast oh, that's right, that's right. doing that and mm-hmm. yeah i think yep. a lot of people are hungry for that americans i mean i know the brits have a bit more connection to that, uh, thanks to BBC. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's it's definitely something alongside the Krampus uh, tradition that's kind of been embraced a little yeah. bit easier to pull off uh, reading some ghost stories and putting together a monster costume and getting twenty five thirty of your friends to run around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do hope a few people pick up your book from this. It is the only. Uh, it's the only. There are some like collect, image uh, postcard collections and some books that. They're sort of, they're, you know, various like fictional books, but this is the only English language book on the history of the Krampus uh, out there. So if you want to know more than what you've heard, it's, it's, it's available everywhere, you know, Amazon, whatever. And it's wonderful. Thank Highly you. recommend it. <laughs> well, good. Well, Al, thank you so much for talking to me and taking the time to do this. I've actually, since I started doing this, you were one of the people I definitely wanted to talk to. So oh, um, I'm glad. It's been, I mean, it's nice also, it's nice to talk to somebody who knows about, <laughs> you're, you're definitely know you're talking about, you know, the area generally, right? right? I've got right, right, yeah. questions. I was on the, what's it, Coast to Coast, that art, used to be the Art Bell show, and I I, I know what crazy, weird, bad questions are, so <laughs> great to talk to somebody that kind of knows about, you know, knows the, ter- the terrain. Well, good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Al made me feel a little bit better about Krampus. Maybe I should just call him Cloughbow from now on. Make it feel a bit more special and creepy. But absolutely check out Bone and Sickle on your podcast app. There are links to all the episodes we mentioned at weirdchristmas.com along with links to his book. And again, I gotta tell you the full title again because it's awesome. The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Roots and Rebirth of the Folkloric Devil. You should buy it now. Not a bad start to the season. Werewolves and Krampus definitely hitting a Halloween vibe. If you like the show and want to help me out, think about joining me on Patreon. For $2 or $5 a month, you'll get access to bonus episodes, extra content, even some real physical cards in the mail through the year. And a big thank you to Captain Scott, who joined up since the last episode. And another big thank you to a couple people who said that they like that I don't have a million different episodes, because they can listen to all of them each year. And that's kind of much kinder than telling me I'm lazy and just need to make more of them. But if Patreon isn't your thing, you can buy me a coffee or a $3 donation at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. That's ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. Links to all this stuff's at weirdchristmas.com. And if money's tight, which, I mean, hey, it's been a rough year, maybe leave a review at Apple Podcasts or with whatever podcast app you're using. If you let me know you did it, I'll send you a weird Christmas sticker in the mail. Otherwise, if you have questions or suggestions or just want to chat, send me a note at weirdxmas at gmail.com. 
or DM me on whatever social media thing you use to follow the cards. Speaking of, we're starting to get into the Thanksgiving stuff after Halloween. I've been queuing them up, and man, I gotta admit, it's kind of a dead spot between Halloween and Christmas as far as the vintage postcards go. I mean, you get some fun turkey people and a few naked toddlers cooking giant birds, but, you know, just a lot of women in the kitchen and turkeys and pilgrims. But we'll make the best of it. Remember, too, that if you're listening to this on Halloween, you've still got one more day to enter the Flash Fiction Contest. Check out the website for all the details. I hope your holiday season isn't totally destroyed by COVID. Mine isn't yet, but there's still time. Oh, and go and frickin' vote if you haven't yet. Get a spine. Take some responsibility. I know most of you are Americans, but you don't have to act like it. Yes, I mentioned politics. Guess I should apologize. Somebody left me a review saying that they loved the show but hated that I ragged on Trump once or twice and only gave me a couple stars. Which, I mean, like, really? No sticker for you. Thanks for the otherwise good review, I guess. I apologize for, like, being a citizen and giving a crap. So just for that, we'll finish strong. And until next time, here's hoping Krampus comes for Trump. Black lives matter, trans lives matter, and don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. Tis Krampus knocked, tis Krampus knocked, bring out your naughty children. Tis Krampus knocked, tis Krampus knocked, bring out your naughty children. If any child has been a brat, we'll make sure they pay for that. Tis Krampus knocked, tis